This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are going to talk about fashion, but more specifically, we're going to talk about fashion. Fashion. Yeah, which is an actual um, kind of online community of women who are interested in fashion, whether that's buying clothes, looking at clothes, curating images of clothes. Um, but they also happen to be plus size. Yeah, fashion is a mashup, obviously, of the words fat and fashion. And while fashion might sound like a bit of an insult, I know the first time I ran across it, it was in a New York Times headline. I was like, whoa, is this okay? I don't know. <laughs> but no, it's very much okay. They the Fashionistas wear that label as a badge of pride because one of the coolest things about fashion and the fashion community or we could say plus size fashion bloggers is that it's not about plus size being some phase that they're moving through on their way to being runway thin. It's their bodies and they embrace it and they want to dress them beautifully and in ways that make them feel great. Yeah, exactly. They're not trying to just buy cheaply made you know, junky clothes because they're on some journey to lose however much weight. They want to, like you said, dress their bodies in a way that is both comfortable and fashionable and fun for them. And not surprisingly, this fashion conversation is going to get political because as came up when we were talking in a recent podcast on when women began wearing pants, clothes are usually not merely Clothes. Clothes are often loaded garments. And in this case, fashion intersects a lot with the fat acceptance movement, with healthy at any size, and with women making radical political statements with their bodies by wearing what they want to wear. Exactly. Yeah, I won't be contained to a muumuu from Lane Bryant. You know, like I won't wear just something that you think I should hide my body in. I want to actually have fun with fashion. Yeah, and just to kind of kick things off, I wanted to read a quote from a study on the retail market and fashionistas uh, by Diane Scarboto and Eileen Fisher. And they write that given the widespread stigmatization of fat bodies, it isn't surprising that the consumer segment least attractive to marketers in this aesthetically oriented industry would be consumers whose bodies society typically deems unattractive. And so in this way, from the get-go, this plus-size fashion blogging, i.e. fashion, is inherent 
deeply political and radical, even though, I mean, the whole irony of this is that, you know, 40% of female retail consumers in the U.S. require plus sizes, and the average female body in the United States is what would be considered plus, so plus is actually average. Right. But not in the eyes of high-fashion designers. Well, right. I mean, they just act as if women over a certain size don't exist. Right. So, but that is where that fat... Uh, acceptance movement kind of stems from that, that politicization of, um, both size and clothing. And the thing that we're talking about today is more focusing on that fashion aspect and that transition from kind of activism to just writing about fashion and kind of reveling in aesthetics has sort of left some of the original kind of fat activists and fashionista creators a little irritated, you could say. Yeah, because in the development of this faction community that really took off online, we now have a faction spectrum ranging the radical political to the more purely aesthetically driven. And so on December 3rd, 2004, we have the launch of Fashionista, which is a live journal community that was started by a woman named Amanda Piacet who is a queer fat activist from San Francisco. Um, and she started it as a support community and a place to exchange fashion tips on finding out how to get cool-looking plus-size clothes that weren't necessarily from Lane Bryant. Right. And speaking of clothes that aren't necessarily from Lane Bryant, this was the same year that Karl Lagerfeld got publicly in the press, very tackily, if, if that's a word, it's not a word. Upset when H&M wanted to expand his uh, special collaboration line to include plus sizes. And Karl Lagerfeld, it should be pointed out, used to be a bigger gentleman. Yeah, and he snarkily told Vogue UK that what I designed was fashion for slender and slim people. I'm, I'm glad he pulled out some synonyms for thin. Yeah. Slender and slim. Just keep going. Just slender and slim people. Right. And I, you know, it's kind of gross to hear that when you're confronted with this opinion, which is surely not held by just one highfalutin designer. Yeah. And not even just highfalutin designers, even among, you know, lower end retail stores like uh, H&M, for instance, you know, the right. kind that you can walk into and leave with a $50 outfit. And so Piasecki launched launches this community, which takes off really quickly because all of a sudden this group of women finds each other and they're sharing stories about the lack of choice, about having to kind of just accept whatever clothes, the limited range of clothes that are out there in their sizes that might not be of the best quality and certainly not of the trendiest trends and having to deal with comments like that from Lagerfeld and also just the comments of maybe everyday people on the street. Right. And so that's why this was definitely this community on Live Journal was definitely a place where women could turn to just discuss clothes and feeling good in clothes, not about dieting or weight loss. And I thought that they had a really great introduction. Amanda had a really great introduction to her uh, to her blog. Yeah, she wrote, Welcome Fashionitas. Here we will discuss the ins and outs of fat fashion seriously and stupidly, but above all, standing tall and with panache. Right, and the basic idea behind this online community was that they didn't want to change themselves to fit this market. 
They wanted the market to change. They want the whole conversation about clothing, bodies, acceptance, confidence. They want all of that to shift. But now, less than 10 years after that live journal community launched, and from there, you know, so many fashion blogs were launched, uh, Piasecki says that fashion has been co-opted by the mainstream. Yeah, she is none too pleased about the the leaving behind of the politics. She and several other bloggers actually consider it to be kind of overly fluffy, not not enough substance. There's not enough of a philosophical discussion going on anymore. But so we have this movement of bloggers who were once part of that live journal community who have gone on to start bigger projects and earn sponsorships. And that's kind of a sticking point for some of the the old guard, I guess you could say. And so, you know, we should talk about some of these new girl bloggers One of them is Nicolette Mason. She has the Big Girl in a Skinny World column in Marie Claire. Yeah, and then there are people like Jay Miranda, who has a really prominent blog. Um, There's Tiffany Tucker, Fat Shopaholic. And then there's Samantha Rasmussen, for instance, who started her blog, Stiletto Siren, in response to when she was going through a period of dieting, and it was making her feel awful about her body. And so she found this fashion community and then started blogging herself and found a lot of empowerment through that. And that's a narrative that you hear over and over and over again uh, with these blogs. Uh, for instance, Alyssa Wilson, who started Stylish Curves, says the goal is not to look smaller. The goal is to find clothes that make you look good, just how you are. And then we have to talk about Gabby Gregg, because I feel like within the mainstream of these fashion bloggers. You have Nicolette Mason, who is pretty prominent because of that gig that she has with Marie Claire. But Gabby Gregg, on her blog, Gabby Fresh, which used to be Young, Fat, and Fabulous, went viral not too long ago. And speaking of women trying to find clothes that make them look good, Gabby Gregg's blog, Gabby Fresh, is a great example of great fashion. I mean, she looks adorable in everything she wears. And she was writing about her previous blog, Young, Fat, and Fabulous, and said, I am passionate about reclaiming the word fat and loved the previous name of my blog, but I try to be realistic about our society. I can spread my message even farther if I have a name that focuses on my style rather than my size. And spread her message she did when she posted pictures of herself in a bikini. And I loved the uh, her captioning on uh, this bikini, which was a high-waist bikini, and it had black, a black and white chevron type of pattern on it. And she noted that uh, the style of the top made her breasts look even larger than they already are. She was like, but I don't even care because I love how this bikini makes me feel. And she looks fabulous yeah. in it. And the post from her blog, I think, ended up on Exo Jane, and then she ended up on the Today Show, and it went viral so quickly because people were so astounded, in largely a good way, by a plus-sized woman proudly posting a photo of herself in a bikini and not just trying to cover up her body. It wasn't her modeling different kinds of cover-ups. It was her in a bikini. Yeah, and it was it was refreshing to see, and she did... Look incredible. The, the photos were awesome. And that led this year in 2013 to a collaboration between Gabby and Swimsuits for All. She created her own line full of neon bathing suits, bright bathing suits, because one of the huge complaints you hear from women in this community are that um, 
you don't have any other bathing suits besides navy brown and black, the kind that like squish your organs together when you put them on to try to make you look slimmer. And so instead of trying to hide behind, you know, a, a baggy black bathing suit, she was saying, no, let's celebrate our bodies. Let's wear bikinis and let's wear some freaking neon bikinis. And in her response to the overwhelming response that she received, Gabby said that the challenges that she and the fashion industry both face are that readers uh, and, you know, magazine buyers everywhere, they want to see aspirational images and they don't consider plus size to be aspirational. And she says the fashion industry can have the same attitude. And to me, that's one of the most refreshing aspects of this fashion blogging community is that it's not, it is, is that it isn't aspirational. Exactly that. It's not trying to tell women, well, wouldn't you like to look like this? No, it's, oh, you can look like this. And, and here you go. Um, and after Greg's uh, bikini post went viral, it got the attention of the New York Times and there were ripple effects in Teen Vogue and Refinery29. And this mainstreaming effect, of course, brought a lot more media attention to these blogs, which also, of course, caught the eye of retailers. And so you have bigger name fashion bloggers like Gabby Gregg, who are starting to partner up with different uh, clothing companies to develop lines or to consult on things or simply to show up at events and also to try on clothes and put those clothes on their blogs, do that kind of promotional blogging that happens a lot. And so we circle back around to Amanda Piasecki, who is none too pleased with this. Yes, she had some harsh words for this mainstreaming and said it's become an exercise in showing how much fat people can be like the mainstream. So their worth is questionless, which I think is a ridiculous exercise. For me, the right pursuit is creating a new culture. And I think, you know, Piasecki was really striving with her live journal community to do something bigger than than just talk about clothes. You know, she she had a, a bigger goal, and I think she's disappointed to see possibly in her opinion that these women are maybe stopping short of that goal but i mean i don't i don't think i don't think they are necessarily i think they're taking it in a different direction. Well, and it's kind of like in the case with Greg as a businesswoman, which is what she's become. She's parlayed her blog into, uh, you know, a full-time job for herself, which is an outlier experience, but nevertheless, it's impressive that she's done it. But in the process of doing that, she realized that she might have to take some attention off of her body and focus it more on mm-hmm. the clothes, even though the problem that Piasecki would say with that is that the two are inextricably linked because still in this society, fat bodies are stigmatized in a way that thin bodies aren't. Right. It's not like by taking the word fat out of the conversation, suddenly magazines, you know, high fashion magazines will start running models who look like Gabby or running clothes that look like the ones that she's modeling. Yeah, in that New York Times article I mentioned earlier that was written in response to Gabby's viral bikini, Nicolette Mason told the paper, quote, posting photos of yourself on the Internet and saying, hey, I'm fashionable, even if the fashion media doesn't recognize me, is hyper-political. But, she said, you could almost hear the exasperation in her voice in this quote, She said, why is someone my size in a bikini making headline news? 
And see that right there, it comes right back around to, you know, what part of what at least Piasecki is frustrated with. And she's not the only one who is frustrated. Uh, Natalie Perkins, for instance, in November 2012 at XO Jane posted a blog called When Activism Gives Way to Advertising, How Fat Girl Blogging Ate Itself. Right. And she criticizes these blogs and columns and things like Nicolette Mason does for Marie Claire and says that these blogs are nothing but lists of obvious advice, shiny, happy content with the nutritional value of bubblegum and cutesy sign off graphics. And she says kind of what we've been talking about, that you can't solve the stigma that exists against fat women by pushing fashion bloggers into the mainstream um, because she says, you know, just look, look around you. It's not like all of a sudden these huge department stores and fancy stores in the mall are carrying really well-made, high-quality, high-volume, um, plus-size clothes. Like, these blogs have not had the bigger effect that other people would possibly hope for. And she goes on to criticize the issue of sponsored posts, free clothes, which she calls the joining of oppressed and oppressor in brand relationships. And she also claims that blogs have lost their diversity factor and that when fashion became bigger, then it really brought just white, cisgender, attractive, middle class, able bodied women to the forefront. Although I will say that in our search for this episode of really like digging in and looking at all of these uh, more high profile bloggers who were called out by New York Times, Teen Vogue, etc., there actually was a, a good amount, at least, of racial diversity that I saw. Um, but, I, you know, clearly there's some frustration going on. And I can hear both sides of the argument. Sure. So, I mean, speaking of, like, the availability of these clothes in stores for women, I mean, there just aren't that many selections available. I mean... Uh, Natalie Perkins is right in that all of these fashion blogs have not transitioned into greater actual opportunities to, to shop. Um, we might have a store like Target, which does see the plus market as a quote unquote growth opportunity. But many other stores have failed to provide viable options. Stores like Ann Taylor and Ellen Tracy have removed their lines from the actual brick and mortar stores, for instance. Yeah, during the recession, plus sizes in stores like Ann Taylor took the greatest hit compared to what are termed straight sizes. And it's unfortunate when things like that happen because according to the NPD group, for instance, the plus size business is often regarded as quote unquote tertiary. So it's like, oh, well, if, if, if we have to, then we'll do this. I mean, you have the stalwart Lane Bryant, which I learned has been around since the 1920s. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? Um, and, and then you have other random uh, plus size outlets here and there. Although with the rise of online shopping, I know there have been a lot more brands that have popped up, but even still for the average plus size shopper, you know, I'm sure hearing about like a new line, maybe at Ann Taylor is great, but then, you know, things get things get cut so quickly. Right. And that leads people like Leslie Kinzel, who wrote two whole cakes. If you damage your clothes, you can't just run out and get a new cute dress. She says that fat style is a scarce resource. And she's right. Both the sale of and stocking of plus size clothes in stores plummeted during the recession. And part of the reasoning for this is that plus size clothes are more expensive to make. They require more fabric and they're more difficult to fit. 
Because when you look at when manufacturers make clothes, they're aiming to fit groups of people. But the groups who truly fit well into an 18, 20, and 22 aren't very large. While many women will fit well into sizes 6, 8, and 10, for instance. So that ends up resulting in fewer options on the plus size end of the spectrum. And cash-strapped shoppers, especially during the recession, weren't about to shell out a bunch of dough for clothes that didn't even fit right, for which retailers didn't even take the time to, you know, do the right fit measurements. Yeah, and that issue of the the cash-strapped shopper, too, is something that does particularly affect plus-size shoppers who might not have the additional funding to pay for either plus-size clothes, more plus-size clothes, uh, because those are often marked up because the supply is so low, so mm-hmm. retailers can jack the prices on that, or do, th- do things like having specially made clothes or go for higher-end plus-size retailers. Yeah, and there are uh, like niche stores popping up online, which is great. But again, I mean, it's so hard. Like, you know, I I know that I can run to Macy's on my lunch break, you know, plain and simple. But if you are looking for a specific size that is not carried in stores like Macy's, H&M, et cetera, et cetera, you can't just run out and simply get a new dress or simply get a new pair of pants. Like you it's great that these independent retailers and designers are cropping up online it's just unfortunate that it has to be so segregated. Well, if you consider for a moment how you can go from store to store to store and try on the same size in a pair of jeans in the same cut and they fit wildly differently from the Gap to Banana Republic to wherever else you're going. And yet you have, you know, plenty of stores to at least choose from if you're shopping in straight sizes that you can probably finally find like a store that will work on your body. Imagine how that issue is probably times a million if you are looking for something in the narrow range of plus size stores. And even with that, your options are probably broader online, but then you have to wait to get them to come to your house and then you have to try them on. Yeah. I think one of the circles of hell is ordering an item of clothing from the internet and waiting until it comes and then it comes and then it doesn't fit and you have to mail it back. That's just an aside, personally. But I mean, I know, I mean, imagine how, but not all of my shopping is that way. That's if I'm ordering a special item or don't feel like going to the store or something like that. Well, and that's why this blogging community in particular is such a resource for a lot of women. Because not only is there impeccable styling, but it's, you know, a click away to see, you know, where where these items actually are instead of having to go through and dig through, uh, you know, either plus size outlets or having to find a site online. Well, so, yeah, I mean, like we're talking about with with the rise of independent retailers and designers online, it's not all bad news. For instance, the first plus sized show in New York's Fashion Week history happened back in September of 2013. Eden Miller's spring and summer collection for her clothing line, Kiberia, walked the runway. 
Yeah, and Nicolette Mason is one who keeps up a lot with especially higher-end plus-size fashion, and she's talked about how there are a number of bespoke and independent designers who are developing plus-size lines, but again, that kind of stuff gets into whether issues of whether or not you can afford those kinds of fancy clothing. But regardless, I still feel like the, the messages that come up repeatedly on fashion blogs are are empowering whether you are a plus size or a straight size because it, it kind of it seems like the rules of fashion are that there are no rules and that's wonderful and that's something that you don't hear very often because you know all those rules about uh you know avoid horizontal striping and don't wear bright colors etc and fashion is the opposite they say that to embrace whatever kind of style that you want to rock. Because I think in the larger discussion of the fat acceptance movement and just in general of everyday life of trying to accept your body, I don't think any amount of visibility, whether it's online in magazines, on the news, wherever, that visibility of uh, plus size women celebrating their bodies, having fun with clothes. I mean, that can't be a bad thing. I mean, I think we've got this attitude like, We're all afraid of fat. We're afraid of your fat. You should be afraid of your fat. Um, I think that's really, it's pervasive and it's ugly. And I think these bloggers are sort of flouting all of that and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm a good person. Like I, I don't have anything to hide just because I'm not some straight size. Yeah. And I can, again, I can completely understand fears of, Fashion becoming co-opted by retailers who ultimately want to downsize all of these women anyway. But I do see things still moving in the right direction, even when reading those blogs that are focused mostly on the clothes and about the lifestyle and looks and all of these things that might seem frivolous, but are actually quite significant when you put it in the perspective of how we consider women's bodies in general and what is acceptable on a woman's body and what's not. Yeah, it absolutely is political to look society in the face and say, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to dress the way that I want to dress and I'm going to feel good about it. Yeah, which is why I'm going to wear pants, white pants after Labor Day if I oh, doggone well please. Sally would not like that at all. Sally disapproves of white. She will stop me when we're walking and be like, that woman is wearing white after Labor Day. Come on, Sally. Traditional Southern fashion ideas. Get your mom with the times. I still will not wear white shoes after Labor Day, but that's just me. Well, we want to hear, though, from listeners on this. If you are a fashion blogger, you're a member of the fashion community, um, if you have awesome plus-size sites to recommend, uh, I know that we didn't cite a lot of brands uh, because we didn't want to turn this into a giant commercial, but uh, we could definitely collect recommendations from listeners and post it over on our Tumblr to do our part for spreading the word about some great sites to go to as well. So you can email us momstuffadiscovery.com or you can hit us up on Facebook or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. 
So we've got a couple here about our Halloween costume episode. And this first one is from... Ashley, and she writes, This year I'm dressing up as La Katrina, a Mexican folk character associated with the Day of the Dead. I should point out that I've studied Spanish and Latin American culture for most of my life and find her fascinating. Most people aren't going to get it and assume I'm going as a sugar skull, which I found to my surprise as I looked for makeup ideas online some consider culturally insensitive. I did get the opinions from several Mexican friends of mine asking them if someone dressed up as La Katrina or a sugar skull, if they would find that to be a misappropriation of their culture, and they replied that no, they most certainly wouldn't unless that person made a completely ridiculous cartoonized version. I put a lot of effort into making my costume culturally appropriate and accurate and will wear it with pride. So where do you draw the line of what's offensive? Over the years, I've seen many people dress as Frida Kahlo for various occasions, but it never struck me as offensive that they drew her famous unibrow on their own faces. Is that both culturally insensitive and a jab at those with hairier eyebrows? Personally, I don't think so. Uh, so I would say to Ashley that, like we brought up in the podcast, dressing up like La Katrina, a Mexican folk character, is not misappropriation at all. And that way you are celebrating this character. You're not putting on a sombrero and saying, oh, hey, here I am. Um, and in terms of Frida Kahlo, too, I, as someone who might have thicker eyebrows... <laughs> Uh, I could have a Frida Kahlo if I really wanted to. No, I don't think that's offensive as well. Again, you're dressing up as a, a person from history. Now, if you were to do brown face or something with Frida Kahlo, then no. But I don't think that drawing in eyebrows, because that's a prominent facial feature right. of hers, is wrong. Absolutely. So thanks, Ashley. Well, I have another uh, costume email here from Kara. Her subject line is serendipity, racially offensive serendipity. And she actually had listened to our Halloween costume podcast the same day that she later encountered the racially insensitive costume of another human being oh dear. in the office. So, Kara says, I was coming back from lunch when some coworkers asked me to weigh in on a topic of discussion, namely that one of our coworkers couldn't understand how a white man wearing blackface could be considered offensive. At first, I assumed that he must be joking. After all, we live in Los Angeles, so it's not as though we're lacking on liberal views or diversity. Despite the fact that all the other guys in the conversation were adamant about how inappropriate and racially insensitive it would be, our coworker could not be convinced and ultimately left the conversation. Not only could he not see how blackface is offensive, he seemed surprised that the rest of the group was so vocal and unwavering in telling him so. I'm not entirely sure what to make of this event, especially because I never would have assumed that a 30-something guy working in my office would think blackface was okay. Being 2013 and all, I hope that we had evolved a little more past that. Guess not. It's times like this that I'm really grateful for your podcast and how you speak so openly and frankly about modern issues, and more importantly, issues that, until today, I had assumed were mostly resolved. So thank you for listening, Kara, and I I hope we gave you some ammunition to add to that discussion, but it sounds like there was no convincing this guy, so that's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. But we are also grateful for your emails, and notes, momstuffdiscovery.com is our email address. You can also find us on Facebook, like us while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast, and check out our Halloween costumes on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, and 
And you can also find us on YouTube. We got a lot of videos up there, so you should head on over to youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.